Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael, Hi, Michael, this is Michael Waits from ATP Angels. I'm here with Rajesh Segal. He's an angel investor and the managing partner of Equanimity Investments. Thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, the place is entirely mine. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. Look, let's start with a little bit of your background and how you got interested in investing, and then we'll move into angel investing as well. You've had quite a long career, so maybe just give a little bit of background on how that started. Right. So I think quickly, uh, uh, you know, I've been uh, in the investing on the investing side of this business all my life, uh, essentially. Uh, straight out of college, I started investing uh, my own money in the stock market and uh, learned the hard way that it is not an easy business. Not at all. Uh, and, <laughs> and then I went and I got myself um, an MBA in, uh, in finance and came back into the organized world of investing at a firm, uh, SBI Capital Markets, which in those years was the uh, preeminent place for anyone to start a, a career in finance and investing. Uh, I worked there for three years, uh, learned the uh, ropes of how investing works, uh, and then I got uh, uh, you know an opportunity to work with uh, Franklin Templeton. As in 1999, uh, Dr. Mark Mobius hired me to work with him on the emerging markets uh, investment piece. So since 99, I spent the last 17 years working with uh, Dr. Mobius on the emerging market side till uh, Feb of this year uh, when I when I stepped out and have set up uh, Equanimity where I'm the managing partner. And what we're trying to do here is invest in early stage uh, companies uh, in the Indian ecosystem. So that's essentially the background. Uh, over the last 17 years with Templeton, I invested in public markets. We have a private equity business. I was involved in that business for the last 17 years. Uh, we did four funds, uh, you know, and the performance was stellar first quartile also. So, so it's been a great journey. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, in the last 10 years, having uh, worked with uh, very smart, uh, capable entrepreneurs uh, setting up businesses from fresh, uh, you know, ground up completely. You know, it's been uh, fun rolling up my sleeves, working with them and creating world-class businesses. Uh, I've made uh, 22 investments in early-stage companies uh, over these 10 years and have been uh, successful in selling eight of those. So the uh, performance, as I say, uh, you know, like to like to repeat is... Uh, has been very, very satisfying, both in a qualitative aspect as well as a quantitative aspect. So here I am. So this is really fascinating. And just the opportunity to have been able to work with the entire Templeton team, but also someone like Mark Mobius, who is you know, very well known for being a yes. pioneer in the emerging markets. Um, I'd love to know sort of what the basis is for the learnings that took place while you're at Templeton. Right. And then maybe right. if you can transfer that into what's going on at Equanimity and also your personal investments in um, in startup companies. Sure, of course. So, uh, you know, the essential Templeton way of working emanates uh, uh, from Sir John Templeton himself, who actually has espoused uh, 16 rules of investing, if you, if you must say. And I think uh, for anyone interested in the world of investing, whether it's public markets or uh, VC or angel, I strongly recommend you to go online and just search for these 16 rules. And, uh, uh, you know, these rules have stood me in good stead all through my investing career uh, and uh, has, have shaped uh, how I think and about investing. 
you know, I would like to really uh, share a few of those. You know, I don't want to go through all the 16, but but few of those which I really, really think are have been important and instrumental. Uh, you know, first, I think is, and they're all so basic, I'll tell you all of them. Yeah. Uh, he says, uh, Sir John Templeton said that you should invest and not trade or speculate. Right. And I'll tell you, yeah, it's so basic. It's so basic. I, I, I hate to interrupt you, but that's so important. <laughs> no, but it's so important today. Yes. Because the public markets have moved to a place where it's no longer about the proper allocation of capital and the efficient allocation of capital. It's about how to take micro money out of you know, a high-frequency trading strategy. So it seems to me that that's not the reason why the capital markets were created. So investing is very different than trading. So I just wanted to make that point. Absolutely. I, com- I completely agree with you. And I think most people who come into the stock markets, and I, I, I must say, you know, uh, not just novices, et cetera, but, you know, seasoned uh, investors, in my opinion, are still not investing. They're still, uh, trading. you know, speculating or trading. Yep. And, and I think... Uh, you know, that's just to have this answer question. And, and and I must tell you, you know, what I've done all these years is uh, in my office, I have a list of these 16 uh, rules. Right. And before I make an investment, any investment, I have to tick off most of these 16. You know, so it's just a sanita- sanitation that I, that I believe in. And this so, is going to be I'm, a great conversation. <laughs> no, it really is. Keep going. And I'm I want to go through you, all you of these. I want to go through all of these. You have to keep it as basic, you know. So, so that's one. The other one is uh, that uh, that comes to mind is he says uh, you have to buy value, and you know, you know, Sir John Templeton was a was a great value investor. Correct. So he would say, you know, you got to buy value and not the uh, trends or not the economic uh, conditions or economic outlook, and uh, you know, just that, you know, just buy value. Essentially. Uh, as we all know that uh, bull markets create many more investors or many more people who come to the markets yes. than do bear markets, right? And I think it's the, it's it's so simple that you have to understand, first of all, where there is value and then buy them and then buy that value, not market trends or, uh, you know, okay, this, this sector is hot, you know, let's go put some money in this sector. That's not investing. That is no. speculating. Yep. Right? So it, it ties in. So all these 16, in my opinion, tie in. Uh, you know, uh, I think another important thing that he says, and as a fund manager, you know, I have to say this, is uh, you have to do your homework if you're an investor. And if you don't have the bandwidth to do your homework, to find value, etc., then you should hire experts to help you. And this is where I think the role of fund managers uh, comes in, uh, fund managers or wealth managers comes in. So, uh, I think for most people out there who are trying to become angel investors and invest money in early stage companies, I think it's great to uh, play around and have and get a kick out of it. But if you really want to invest and make it a, a you know a, a component of your overall asset allocation or your wealth, I think you have to get professional help and and take the help of fund managers. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, one of the things I try to tell people when they're making investments, right? They say, oh, I just do angel investing on the side. And one of the questions I ask them is, is there anybody, is there any other part of your life where you hire somebody who's just doing something on the side? Like if you were running a law firm, would you hire a lawyer and just, uh, I'll just do it one day a week? Or even somebody who's mowing your lawn, right? I just do it once a month. I'm just a gardener once a month. Right. At, at no point in your life would you ever do that. And you wouldn't yourself actually try to sell yourself as an expert for something that you just do periodically. 
Correct. So Correct. that's why fund management exists, and that's why you pay people to do it for you. That's why it's not free. Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's another one that comes to mind. You know, he says that any investor who has all the answers mm-hmm. hasn't even understood the questions. That's right? my favorite, actually. <laughs> if I had to pick a favorite out of the 16, that's my favorite. Tell, yes. me, why, tell me why you like it. I, I mean, as I said, you know, as we were talking on the side, I mentioned that, you know, investing is all about keeping on learning. And we learn every yes, day. Every day. And, uh, and, the, and the basic fact that you admit that you don't know everything, I think it, it stems from that. Uh, none of us are experts in, in all areas. We are not. We just can't be. It's not possible. Uh, and so I think it, I think the greatest fortitude lies in admitting that we are not experts in everything and therefore uh, trying to ask the right questions and get the answers to those questions. Uh, but, you know, if you think you have all the answers, I can assure you that uh, Sir John Templeton is right. You don't even understand the question. <laughs> no, you don't. Look, I remember when I first started studying Japanese when I was living in Japan. And, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, excellent. I lived in Japan for 22 years. Wow. Right. And the Japanese people are very polite and kind and would say to me, your Japanese is very good, yeah. which was a lie, <laughs> which was a lie. But what I, my response to them was what I know, I know really well, but what right. I don't know is voluminous. Correct. And that actually pushed me to learn how to speak Japanese better, but it's a way, I, it's kind of the way I live my whole life too. Sure. There's a whole bunch of things that I know really well, but the stuff that I don't know really well is so much larger um, and so much broader that if you're not in the process of trying to learn every day, regardless of what your chosen field is, um, right. then you've, you're already lost. Right. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll you know take you through one more that I believe in uh, on, a, on a regular basis, which is not to be too fearful or negative uh, too many times or too often. Right, right. And I think that's the whole uh, basis of uh, investing, right? You're investing because you believe the future is going to be better than where you are today. So as an investor, uh, you have to approach investing uh, in a very optimistic manner, not to say that you should forget the tenets of buy value and buy low and be sensible about what you're doing, understand what you're doing. But I think as our our, uh, whole persona, we have to be, be, we have to ensure that we are not very fearful too often. Otherwise, and there's enough and more data to support this in the, from the public markets, though, uh, which says that you will miss uh, most of the upside. Yeah, I think I think a really great investor is always going to be an optimist at some level. Correct. Because Correct. if you're buying something that has value and you expect it to increase in value, that increase in value is just based on some right. type of basic optimism. Right, right, right. And so this is, uh, you know, so these are the tenets that I've uh, always uh, believed in. And this led me to always keep an open mind because one of his tenets also says that always diversify and there's no one right uh, asset class or investment for all seasons. And I think that's where, uh, you know, my experience in public markets and then the private equity business at Templeton and then angel investing uh, in early stage companies has, has come from. Yeah, I'd like to bring up actually two more of these tenants, if you don't mind me saying. Please. One is outperforming the market is a difficult task, right? So what that means, I think, from my mind is that you don't necessarily have to buy the entire index, right? Right. If there is an index, but you should know that outperforming that market is very difficult, which means when you're curating, if you are curating your investments, just do, again, that gets back to do your homework, right? 
Absolutely. Because you can't do that without that. It's just not possible. And the other one that I really like a lot, I guess we're going to get to all 16 of these is, <laughs> but it's important, yes. right? Because this is the basis for the angel investments. And I think this is a great way to sort of segue right. into that. But I think the last one that I want to mention is don't panic. Yeah, yeah that's excellent. Yes, I agree. Don't panic. Don't panic. No individual so day is fatal. It is so simple. It's so right? simple. But Just you look relax. at stock prices. You look at what's the what the what the press headlines of the day don't, are, don't. are saying, and you will panic. And you're like, you know, oh my god, I made a mistake. Right. But also remember that if you're trading off of headlines, you've already yeah. lost as well. Correct. Correct. So true. So true. And I think that trading off the headlines becomes even more important in the angel uh, investment area because. You really don't have any market price to look at or any uh, historical five-year analysis that you can do because these are all early-stage companies. There's very little history to go by. So so angel investors tend to get swayed not just by the headlines but also by what this uh, whole phenomena of you know my next-door neighbor is. Oh, you know he says it's bad or he says it's uh, this is not good. Uh, And I'm seeing a lot of lot and lot of that. Yeah, I'm really curious, right? So. You know, I have this concept of no individual day is fatal, right? And I talk to entrepreneurs a lot, and I'm sure you do as well. And one of the right. things I like to tell them when it seems like they are going to panic, right? Because, you know, not, not panicking is hard, actually. Yes. Is that is that because every no individual day is fatal, right? Is that investing in building a business is just about making a little bit of forward progress every day, right? That's step true. by step by step. You will have... Right glitches and you'll have bumps in the road and stuff but just try to keep making forward progress little bits right. and pieces right right um so you've mentioned earlier that you got involved in angel investing sort of you know serendipitously right right can you just talk about and i'll tell you my story as well but i'm just curious how that yeah. happens you know like were you at dinner and one of your friends mentioned they were starting a company or like what was the real beginning yeah. of it and then how did you get into it sort of wholesale yeah, uh, that's actually a very, uh, there's a long story to it, but just to uh, share it. a bit with you yeah. is, uh, uh, you, you know, when you manage funds, uh, you have a fiduciary responsibility, right? Yep. So so any investment that I would make for myself, uh, before making that investment, I needed investment approval from our compliance right. at Templeton, right? Yep. And uh, Templeton being a global firm, we, had, we really had one of the best global uh, compliance standards, and uh, what that meant for me personally was uh, when I looked at my own asset allocation of my personal portfolio, right. I was very low on equity investments. And I was like, okay, you know, this doesn't sound right. You know, I'm managing <laughs> equities for a living right? and I don't have equity in my own portfolio. It doesn't sound right to me. So I started looking around as to how I can shore up my own equity allocation. And that's where I stumbled upon, uh, you know, a few friends who said, you know what, this, uh, these are these young, smart entrepreneurs. They need money to set up their business, you know, and we giving them the money. Uh, and, and they really caught my attention when they said that this is equity and we're not lending money. And I was right. like, okay, this is, this is it. So, so, uh, so that's how it happened. And I, you know, I essentially started investing with a few uh, friends of mine saying, okay, let's give them equity. And that's how uh, I got, you know, sucked into this whole world of uh, early stage investing. What that you said that was what, like ten or eleven years ago? Yeah, this was two thousand six, two thousand seven. You know, it's about ten years ago. And were was all your angel investing, and is it still maybe concentrated in India? Yes, largely in India uh, and the subcontinent. So I've got something in Singapore, I've got something in Sri Lanka, but but largely yeah, it's India. So 
Can you characterize the types of companies that you were investing in initially? And I'm curious if that's changed over time. Right, right. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. So, you know, as a, a, you know, as a portfolio manager, when you look at your own portfolio, you also want to, uh, uh, you know, in uh, I'm talking specifically about the early stage investments I've made. Yes. Uh, I think I've tried to, over the last 10 years, uh, uh, not just look at deals, but look at the overall portfolio. And I think that is a very different way of approaching early stage investing uh, from what I see on the street. I love this. Because, because nine out of 10 guys will tell you deal, 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 deal. You'll hear that word deal right. 10 times in a conversation. Mm-hmm. You'll hear the word portfolio maybe Never. zero or one. Never. Yeah, maybe zero or yep. one. That's what exactly. So, so I think I've, I've benefited from this whole portfolio approach to early stage investing. And uh, at Equanimity, what we've done essentially is married my uh, experience in the early stage ecosystem over the last 10 years, along with my uh, portfolio management uh, experience of managing finite life funds, you know, these private equity funds that I was involved with, right. uh, four, four of those. Uh, and we've said, you know, this is what equanimity will do. We'll uh, carry forward what has worked so beautifully over the last 10 years without any style drift or trying to change things just to suit uh, the structure in which, uh, from which we are investing, you know, whether it's a personal pool or it's a fund. So the so here's the uh, here's the thing you know over the last ten years there's been one consistent uh, uh, you know thread that has woven all my twenty two investments and I can tell you that I didn't think through this before I made those investments but right. then as an individual when I look back uh, it's it's so it's so transparent and clear and here's the investment thesis then for uh, for me and for Equanimity so we I've always invested in those companies that use technology as their backbone. And when I say technology as a backbone, um, you know, what I mean is, and we are, I'm very specific about it. So first of all, I am not a technology investor. And let's get that out of the way. Uh, I invest in technology-enabled businesses. So whether you're a health tech company, you're a fintech, you're a consumer tech, you're robotics, IoT, you know, essentially you have to be using technology as your backbone. And when you do that, technology should very specifically help you in two areas, you know, one of the first is scalability. Yep. Which what I mean is you have to be in a business where you can use technology to scale up. And uh, this, the purpose of specifying this is that more and more uh, consumer-facing businesses, uh, you know, are, are usually spending money to scale up. You know, they're burning cash to scale up. Uh, and, and my view is that you, you know, there are two ways to scale up. One is you burn cash. Second is you build something which will help you scale up. And that's the company kind of company I want to invest in. Uh, and the second quality that a company has to have for me to invest is that technology should help build some kind of a moat around hmm. its business model Absolutely. Or, or revenue model, right? So first of all, you have to have a revenue model and there has to be technology that, that protects it. So as long as technology uh, helps a company in scalability and and sustainability, I think I'm good to go. Uh, at Equanimity, we love those kind of companies. And uh, and beyond this requirement, we are pretty sector agnostic, as I said. Right. And I mean, that fits into probably everything that you've learned over time, right? Because you talked earlier about not necessarily following the hottest trend, right? In other right. words, everybody today is doing biotech. I, I don't care. Right, everybody's yes. doing health. I, I don't care. I mean, I do care, but not just because it's getting done today. The point right. is, 
are they using technology to enable this business to scale? And I want to talk a little bit about your definition of scalability in a second, because I think that's important too. And the right. second thing is, um, you know, what's the moat that gets built around this business? In other words, what's the barrier to entry for people who just see this and say, oh, I right. can do the same thing, right? So you want to Correct. go back for a second and just tell me how you would more deeply define scalability. Is it just repeatability? You can do this over and over again? Or is it means you can get bigger in different geographical regions? Or is it some combination right. of a bunch of things? Right. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that. Before that, just uh, something came to mind, you know, and ties in back to our conversation about the 16 tenets of investing, right? Please. And as I said that I'm sector agnostic, it ties in with uh, what John Templeton said. You know, one of the rules is diversify. Right. Right. So, uh, so as I said, uh, you know, it, it's it's all uh, my learnings come from there. Uh, but coming back to scalability, I think, uh, you know, the, the times that we are we are living in, uh, technology is so omnipresent, uh, you know, that it's really making uh, the world smaller and smaller. And uh, you know, here's how I think about things. So, if if you were, you know, say if you were to go back in time, say twenty twenty five years ago. You would find that you know some folks in Silicon Valley, which is now called Silicon Valley, were, would create some kind of a technology, and that edge that they that they invented and they created would would remain with them for a longer period, much longer period of time, and everybody else would either uh, copy that or license it out, right? Right. And that's that's where I think the genesis of uh, most of the hardware and software companies uh, in the Silicon Valley happened. And I think uh, slowly and gradually we saw that uh, this ecosystem grew and grew and, uh, you know, became so meaningful that you have uh, countries like Israel, which is now called the startup nation, uh, you know, come up where essentially, again, uh, some technologies got developed there and it was taken out of there and implemented globally. Uh, I think what's happened today is because technology is so uh, prevalent and so omnipresent is people working in different startup ecosystems across the world. So Silicon Valley or Israel or China or uh, London for fintech companies or India, Bangalore, uh, Delhi, etc. I think what we are seeing is gone are the days when you could sit down in your office in any part of of the world and try to solve a problem in a silo. Right. I think I think that's those days are gone. So you really, as an entrepreneur, if you are not thinking of building up a globally scalable business then I think you are starting off, uh, you know, you're shortchanging yourself, first of all, and B, you're, uh, you know, you're channelizing a lot of precious resources to something that's uh, that's really not, uh, uh, you know, more the most uh, optimum or the efficient way of doing things. So I think by definition, the way I look at businesses, can this be a global business? I think that's one of the important questions I need, I, I need answered right. before, uh, before economy invests. So that's the whole scalability part. So yes, as you rightly said, uh, whatever business you're creating should be able, you should be able to grow it geography after geography and target market after target market. So, it, sorry, go ahead. It, I interrupted. Yeah, you. I mean, just, uh, just a caveat there. It does Please. not mean that there is no place for niche businesses. I mean, there is a huge uh, place for niche businesses as well. Right. It is just that it's not the kind of investments we are looking for. Right, right. And I, I talk about this a lot, right? A, a viable and a valid business is one thing. An investable business, in my mind, is a completely different animal, right? So, so true. Right, right? And I, again, it's just one of those things that I think most investors and most angel investors are not necessarily understanding completely, right? And I want to get back and make a comment 
where you talked about portfolio, right? So you may or may not know this as well, but I spent the last sort of 10 years in a portfolio trading team. So understanding things like portfolio optimization as well. Yeah. And what it means is that from my perspective, and you have this as well, is that when you're investing in businesses, you're not, and I want to talk about deals, right? And deal sourcing, but not in the context of deals, right? Um, is that when you look at a business, you look at it from a holistic portfolio perspective as well. It's very rare actually to find an investor today that's doing that. Um, and that's a big benefit of course, of coming out of an institutional investment background and particularly the one that you came out of is that knowing like every individual deal, it's interesting in its own right, but how does it fit into your portfolio and how does it fit into the global part of your portfolio as well? It's just very interesting to me to think about portfolio optimization because it means as well, while it is difficult, I'm going to keep talking about these tenants now. It's really fun. Well, right, it's, right. it's really difficult to outperform the market. It's yes. easier, not easy, but it's easier to outperform the market if you actually are using portfolio optimization theory as well. And that's fascinating to me from an angel investment standpoint because very few angels are talking about that. No, absolutely. And I think that's what gives, in my opinion, that's what uh, has ensured that my performance on my uh, angel deals as uh, as a as a portfolio put together has been very satisfactory. Yeah, has been great. I mean, I'm so happy about it. And I think it's it all stems from looking at all these deals as a portfolio. Because look at this: in any given portfolio of uh, early stage companies, let's say, uh, you will have some which will fail. Sure. You will have some which will be home runs, right? And you will have a lot of them in between. Right? And that's I think very typical. Very. The what portfolio optimization and portfolio, the portfolio approach lets you do is that to make sure that the correlation between all your deals there is not very high, which essentially means right. uh, the you don't run a risk of losing all your capital deployed because a few of them went under. Right, because the because your investments are highly cor- correlated. Right, this is a problem if you just right. invested in one sector. Like if you're not sector agnostic, you right. run the risk of having a right. bunch of things happen. But at least two of them right. are your sector right. goes out of favor, so nobody else invests in them, which means that the next round of investment never happens, or that the right. trend itself was not valid to begin with, and that means that making right. that investment to begin with was silly. And then you talk about sorry, you have me very excited now, but now you talk <laughs> about portfolio concentration as well, and if it's too yes. concentrated. By definition, yeah. you've made a poor investment, and that gets back to Mr. Templeton, Sir Templeton's idea of diversification inside of that portfolio. Correct, correct. Look, there are two extremes. You know, uh, one is uh, the the one extreme is what actually I see a lot, especially uh, in the early stage ecosystem, and I call that the spray and pray approach. Correct. Well, we know who does I, that. We don't like them at all, actually. Exactly. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. And the other one is. Good. You just made a friend. Yes, I don't like them either. So, I mean, you know, I think it works for a lot of people. And I think it uh, ties and ties back to your own personality and how you think of investing. Mm. So I think if you are someone who is very comfortable with spraying and praying, I think, you know, good luck. Um, And then there's the other uh, extreme, which is extreme concentration. So, you know, you say, okay, here's my uh, portfolio uh, allocation. And most of it is going into these few uh, deals, uh, which offers you no diversification at all. Right. And I think, uh, you know, we've seen portfolio theory uh, evolve over the years, uh, you know, from a very scientific uh, perspective. And we know that, uh, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 is the number, uh, which is the optimum number of uh, stocks in a portfolio for you to achieve 
a good level of diversification. Yep. Uh, and I think that's the target at equanimity that we have set for ourselves. We said, okay, we should be somewhere around the 20 number in terms of the investments. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't, I could not agree with you more. And the great thing is that the rest of the market doesn't understand that. And they're, while they're busy investing in all of the other companies that are not, that don't fit into the portfolio theory and portfolio and proper portfolio analysis, you get the opportunity to invest in the better companies. Well, that's competitive advantage for you. Completely. So can you, <laughs> can we talk about this a little bit? And you yeah. don't have to mention names if you don't want to, right? But if you could just mm-hmm. walk through maybe a couple of the companies in your portfolio right. and, even ones that you've sold, maybe that's easier, right? But where you said, okay, these have a technological backbone to them and they're using the tech to scale, but also that that tech built a moat around them and that gave them the ability to scale and be global. So if you could just walk through the decision process for what you saw, what you thought, Mm -hmm. and then what you did would be really interesting for people Mm -hmm. to learn about. Right. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, you know, we have a website, uh, www.equanimity.com dot vc and if you go to my website you will see uh, not all but most of the angel deals that i've been part of so okay. it's it's yeah it's, it's a pretty transparent out there and uh, uh, you know if you uh, if you take a cursory glance around the uh, kind of businesses i've invested in and and yeah the website doesn't have only the names of those companies it actually has a link that takes you to the website of the underlying business. So you can go there and see which companies I've invested in, most of those, and what those businesses were. So, so um, uh, you know, that's the level of transparency here. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make is if you go through that list, you will see that most of those businesses, you know, are, are a providing, uh, you know, if you put all of them together, you will see the diversification that I'm talking about. And I think it will also become very apparent if you spend some time on those companies to understand that, okay, so this was a scalable business because, you know, they did scale up most of them and uh, there was sustainability built around it because most of them were sold at a, a good IRR or multiple. Right. But can you, again, can you just take, make, pick one company? I'm, I'm not, I don't mind if it's at your price or Zing HR I go already on my website. <laughs> I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good at this. Um, but I just want to know, like, when you when the company came to you, yeah. and you were going to make your yeah. investment. What did you see? What was the conversation like uh, with the founder? I uh, want to walk through that process so people can understand what a real bona fide sure. investor does. In other words, there's so much right. noise around the process that you see in the news and in the press, and yet most of it's phony. Yeah. But what you're doing is real. You, so I want to walk yeah, through that. Let me take you through uh, through one example uh, very clearly. It's a Thank you. Uh, it's a company called uh, uh, Green Dust, right? So it's on my it's on my website. I see it. And essentially, this uh, uh, company was started by this gentleman who is a dear friend now. Uh, you, you know, he came back from the U.S. after having worked with Microsoft uh, for a few years in the area of reverse logistics. Right? Got it. And uh, when he came to India, he quickly figured out. Uh, that the whole logistic chain in India uh, for moving a product from the manufacturer to the consumer, you know, through the whole network is in place. That that whole logistic network is in place. But when something has to be returned from the customer for a variety of reasons, you know, for example, it's not working well or there's a problem with it, uh, you know, and it needs to be shipped back, the whole logistic network was not there at all. 
Yeah, because the reverse logistics is actually really hard, and most people don't think about it when they're either buying something or even trying to to return it. Right? It just gets so hard to do that. Absolutely. And so this guy, uh, you know, uh, he came he came in with this with this complete fresh thought of saying, "Let us set this up in India." And uh, when he approached me. Uh, as part of the network to invest, I was like, well, let me understand what you're trying to do. And, uh, you know, essentially we started the conversation after he had circulated a white paper that was written by someone on what the hell is reverse logistics. Uh, remember, this was like about nine, ten years ago. And uh, in India, as I said, there were hardly any reverse logistics plays. Um, so, so he actually had, you know, uh, entrepreneurs like him have to really do the heavy lifting of really trying to explain not only to investors of right. what he's trying to set up, but I think imagine the the effort that it takes for you to go to the uh, manufacturer or to the whole to anyone in that uh, in that whole distribution chain to tell them about how this would work. So, so you really have to not only be good at what you're doing in terms of setting up that whole network and bringing in technology to make it. Uh, scalable all across the country, etc. But you also have to be, uh, you know, a good uh, uh, coach because you're essentially teaching people of what this will do for you, right? And right. this is true for most technology companies that you're building up uh, because when you build a new technology, people don't automatically understand what it can do do for them or how it can change the way they they work or they consume or they uh, or they live. Right. And and so it's a it's an uphill task, and I think from an investor's standpoint, you not only have to a imbibe as to you know where that the the entrepreneurs coming from, but you I think you have to have the ability to step into the entrepreneur's shoes and look at the world from that standpoint as to okay why do I firmly believe that what I am trying to create today is going to make a difference to these many people and these many lives and these many businesses. And therefore, create a, a business, and and therefore create wealth for all stakeholders. Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting, and also how it can provide efficiency, um, productivity, and actually yes. help um, contribute to the bottom line as well. But you're right for a business that doesn't exist, so you can't even explain what the comps. You know what comps are, right? Comparable businesses exactly. are. Exactly. Yes. Then going out and ex- educating the market about what those things are can end up being quite difficult, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, when you set up a business uh, in any traditional industry, and I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I can share my experience from the private equity Please. part of the world, Please. is uh, when, when, when you're steady, when you're funding a company that is uh, in a mature business, I think essentially you're trying to see that what is the kind of market size there, which is more or less there because you have the comms, mm-hmm. and, uh, and how do you stack up against the others? And therefore, given your competitive advantages, what kind of market share can you garner from the other existing players realistically uh, right yeah realistically uh, and you can add to that a certain uh, in, uh, you know organic growth rate that the industry is going through so so that's the kind of approach you have right but when you are setting up a technology enabled business or a technology business i think you don't have any existing market to take market share from you're right. essentially saying i'm going to create this whole new market right and to for uh, yeah, so for an entrepreneur he it's it's a dream right which he believes in and as an investor, uh, you know, if you want to partner him in that journey, it is extremely important for you to put yourself or have the ability to put yourself in the shoes of the entrepreneur and see what he's seeing 
And only then can you have the conviction of saying, okay, I'm going to put in, you know, you bring in the labor, I bring in the capital. And those are the two basic uh, uh, factors of uh, production, in, you know, economics 101. Uh, that's how a true partnership works. Yeah, I mean, I'm just keep looking at this business, the green dust business. It's really interesting. So, what's the um, what's the process that you use? A you know, a founder comes to you, a CEO comes to you. They're looking for funding. They go through a, a presentation process to you at some level. Like, yeah. how do you decide whether you're going to invest in that business? What percentage? You don't have to say necessarily, but like, how much of that business do you want to take optimally for you? Right, not necessarily for right. them. Right. And then what do you do after you invest in that business as well as an angel, right? Because remember, you talked about the portfolio optimization having between 20 and 30. You've settled on 20, which is fine. But then what do you do after you make that investment, right? Because there is a concept that money itself is a commodity, but what you know, meaning what you know personally, is not a commodity. So can you just – I know that's a bunch of questions sort of strung together. That's really interesting. Excellent. I think this is – what you're touching upon now, Mike, is essentially the DNA of uh, of early stage investing. Correct. And I'll tell you, uh, so the way I think about this is, is actually very simplistically again. You have a million dollars. You can either go to the stock market and invest that million dollars, uh, or you can take that million dollars and come to the early stage ecosystem and invest in startups here, early stage companies. What's the essential difference? Right? And having done both of them, I'll tell you, the essential difference is actually very simple. In the listed market space, there is no influence on the outcome that you can exercise. Right. Right. Because right. listed that's, companies that's why I asked. will. That's why I asked. Yeah. But so yeah. listed companies will deliver to you, or mature businesses will deliver to you what they can deliver. Now, when you come to the early stage ecosystem and you deploy a million dollars, I can assure you there is a lot of influence uh, that you can uh, bear on the outcome of your investment. And uh, I usually, you know, always draw an analogy between the early stage ecosystem, you know, the new companies, startups, and uh, a newborn baby, <laughs> right? Capital, providing capital to a startup is like providing food to a baby. You know, it is essential, it is critical, but it's not the only thing that a baby needs. Right. right? You have to be uh, nurturing, uh, taking care, you know, changing diapers and so many other things that you need to do for a baby, I think as an investor, it's your fiduciary responsibility to do all of that and bring to bear a lot of other things when you invest in a startup. So the question that you ask is, okay, what do you do after you invest? I think the journey starts after you invest. Right? Investing is just the uh, easiest part, in my opinion, of the whole process. Absolutely. Because you've got to work with these startups. You've got to roll up your sleeves. You, you are not passive money. You cannot be passive in the early stage ecosystem. I mean, that's like completely foolish in my well, You opinion. might as well light it on fire and walk away. Exactly. And, you know, I keep saying this, but, you know, at the same time, I keep seeing uh, a majority of early stage investors uh, doing exactly that. Right. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, you know, so be it. Uh, so I think you have to uh, you have to be fully involved with early stage companies after you deploy capital. And, you know, I've written a piece which I can share with you, uh, Please do. you know, after this call. Please do. Uh, where, where, where what I've done is on the x-axis, you think of a graph, a simple chart. Mm-hmm. On the x-axis is uh, timeline. And on the y-axis is your level of involvement. Now, when you uh, invest in an early stage company, the graph just shoots up to a high level because your involvement level with the startup is very high just after you put in the money, right? right? Because you're trying to help them in every way that you can. And I think this line should remain at that elevated level for 
for some time. And what is that some time? It depends uh, from case to case. It can be as low as six months. It can be as high as a few years. Uh, but I think after that time frame, this line has to then fall down sharply as well. And uh, and this is how I think of my involvement with startups. And why that line has to fall down is I think that's the important part of your uh, success. Because if that involvement chart doesn't fall off right. after that some time, it means bad news. Right. From uh, Because it's uh, either of the two cases. You know, one is that uh, you have as an investor and the founding team not been able to build a build a solid team systems processes etc cetera, etc cetera, for the small baby to have grown and to be able to take care of itself i was going to say which is, basically you have a 6 year old baby now that can't walk and can't talk what's yeah, the exactly point? yeah that's a failure complete failure right? right so that's one and the second uh, uh, you know there's the second in the alternative you know if this is not happening but you still remain highly involved and that curve doesn't fall off it essentially means that now as an investor, you are more interfering than helping. Right. Which is also not good news. So so I think, uh, you know, every investor has to be very cognizant of where is that cutoff point beyond which he has to step back and say, you know what, now you're a grown-up baby, take care of yourself. Anything I do now, if I still hold your hand and walk, or if I still feed you, uh, you know, with a spoon, then I'm just uh, interfering and just bothering you. Right. I mean, I would also make the case that if you continue the same level of investment, I mean, the same level of involvement for your investments over time, you'll never be able to make any more investments either yeah. because, <laughs> exactly. because you're just yeah. too involved. And the other thing is, if the other point, and I know you've made this point, but just to make put a finer point on it, is that yeah. if that company needs your attention after right. so much time, Right. That's a management problem as well. And, and to a certain extent, what you're saying is right. you're investing in that management team too. You're trying to take yes. them from infancy into adulthood. Correct. And if they're not going into adulthood, maybe right. they need to be abandoned at some level. Yeah, and, and you know what? I mean, along with this, at this time, you anyway are getting your MIS, MIS reports from the company, right? On a, right. On a yep. monthly basis, quarterly basis, or whatever frequency you have in mind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you see a red flag, you have the freedom of always initiating a conversation with them saying, you know what? Uh, explain this right. or if if uh, the founder has some uh, use for you some area where he needs help he can always pick up the phone because of the relationship that you've developed with him and and take your help so i think uh, uh, you know that those channels of communication remain open anyway yeah look i i mean i agree with you i guess the last thing i want to ask you there's so much i feel like this is just the beginning of a much longer conversation actually if you don't mind um wow. no i do because I want to end because I don't want to take up too much of your time today, but I feel like there's so many other pieces of this conversation that I want to have with you, whether online or offline, just because it's so interesting to me. But how You'll have to buy a few beers for me. Done. <laughs> <laughs> Done. If that's what you need, that's easy. Um, I'm just curious now. I mean, obviously, you have a ton of experience. You must be relatively well-known in your home markets as well. Mm -hmm. What do you do to find new things to invest in, right? As you were talking in a public market, it's really straightforward. You know, you just look at the stock codes that are listed on a stock exchange or you can look at equity research and you know you can talk to brokers and things like that. But in the private markets, it's much different. How do you determine who can actually come to you and talk to you about their new investments? How do you go out and find the right. next thing to invest in? I'm sure a lot of it comes to you, but right. when you want to get something that fits into your portfolio analysis, you know, into your portfolio properly, if yes. you do a proper portfolio analysis, then it's much more difficult to get the right next piece. So I'm curious how you do that. Right. 
Uh, I think this is uh, this is a classic. Uh, uh, this is actually a very important uh, uh, aspect from a deal pipeline perspective. I think so. And, uh, and you know the way you need to think about this is uh, is is as if you're dating, right? Now, no one, uh, I believe, in their right mind, will sit at home and expect some dates to walk in. <laughs> Never. <laughs> yeah, you got to be out there. You know, you have to be at the bar where you're going to buy me beer, right? Yep. Uh, you have to be out there. I mean, you have to go meet as many people as as you can possibly, and uh, just put yourself out there and uh, spread your message so that people know what you stand for. Be very clear in your communication with uh, the entrepreneurial community and the startup community. Uh, and I think your best ambassadors are the founders of businesses that you've already backed. Companies, yeah. Yes. Yes. Because because anyone who is doing a diligence new is going to pick up a phone and somehow reach someone who with whom you worked. And I think that conversation has to has to check out. I mean, like an investor, if we will do diligence on companies, uh, you know, I, I expect every company to do diligence on us. They better. And they better do that. And, and that's how you find a good fit. So so I think, uh, you know, the, the, there's no shortcut. There's no easy way. It's, uh, it's a difficult task. Uh, as you rightly said, it's, it's much more difficult than in the listed markets. Uh, so, yeah, so just put yourself out there and make as many connections uh, as possible that, that you can manage. Uh, not superficial connections, uh, Facebook right. connections, but right. real world real connections. Real connections, yeah. And you will get deal flow coming to you because everybody wants to work with someone who can deliver value. Right. So one of the things that I've considered over time, right, particularly as I've been involved more and more in the startup community and in sort of early stage investing, is that in the listed markets, and you can agree with the efficacy of these tools or not, but you can buy sort of portfolio analysis tools, whether it's PARA, or tools that are similar to that that tell you, you know, your sector concentration, your performance, all these, you know, the beta, alpha, all these things that are associated with your portfolio. But it also tells you its performance in relation to comparable portfolios, but also indices. And right. I wonder when we reach a stage, because that would be a great tool to have, not just for Series A, Series B, and Series C investors as well, but even for angel investing, where even at right. the earliest stages of a company, you can see what comps have done over time and how would, mm. but also you know what your portfolio is, right? So from a portfolio right. construction standpoint, what right. would the impact of making that new investment have on the expected right. returns of your portfolio? I wonder if you've right. seen any tools like that. If you haven't, I'm just going to go out and build one. Please go and build but one. Do you know what I mean? And, like that would be interesting, right? No one's done that yet, I think. Yes, no one's done that. I mean, especially, you know, no one's done that uh, very simply because of uh, the uh, opaqueness of this whole market. Sure. I understand that. It's not a listed market, so you don't have access to that much information. And even if you have access to information, no one knows how much you can rely on that information, mm -hmm. right? So so by by its very nature, you know, this these kind of products are not there. But, you know, if you're developing one and you need funding, <laughs> Go to www.eplanningmonkey.vc. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, look, Rajesh, this was a great conversation. Hopefully you had as much fun as I did doing this, and hopefully this will not be the last time that we talk to each other, either online or offline. But I really want to thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Um, I, I really, no, really appreciate it. I, I think this was uh, you know, pretty insight, insightful pretty incisive and I think uh, a very relevant conversation for anyone who's spending time to listen to this. Thank you very and much. And I hope they take away something from this. I'm sure they will. Thank you again for your time. Excellent. Thanks a lot. Uh, see you. See you again. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more 
at www.asiatechpodcast.com.